Thank you, Chris, very much uh, indeed. Good morning, everybody. We're in our series together, Following Jesus, and uh, today we're following Jesus with everything. Uh, don't forget, though, uh, that you can uh, ask questions. This is the series where you can ask a question, or two, or three, or four. Thank you for those of you this week that have asked a question, just by a slight way of clarification. If you've asked a question that's got absolutely nothing to do with this series, I will try and answer that question, but it might take me a little bit longer than, uh, than you might expect. I'm not a walking encyclopedia. So if you've uh, asked me some strange, weird thing about the Old Testament, then I will respond, but you can wait for that. Uh, if you've got a burning question that comes out of this series, I'll try and answer that quicker and as we go. Let's pray together, shall we, as we get into uh, the words of God for today. Father, would you help us? Father, would you help us? We can do nothing, nothing without your help. Would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts? Would you help us to see and to hear, to think and to feel, to engage, to connect, to respond? Would you help each one of us to hear what you would say to us this morning? Thank you that you can say something different to every one of us in these moments. And we ask for that miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, yo, I hope you're good to go. Uh, Have your Bible open at that um, verse, or those verses, that chapter in Luke chapter 5. We're just going to flick back in a moment or two to some of the earlier verses, but I'd encourage you to follow it along there with me. So our key verse this morning, you can find uh, there at uh, verse 11, here it comes. So they pulled their their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. So when it says, they left everything and followed him, what does that mean? What does it mean to follow? I don't know uh, about you, but all of us follow people in different ways. I follow the UK Prime Minister on Twitter. I follow Christian thinkers by reading their blogs. I follow my daughters when they're shopping. Uh, I follow uh, a particular team in sport, whatever it might be. So we follow people in different ways and at different levels. What does it mean when it says that they followed Jesus? That's what I want us to kind of dive into this morning. Uh, And to help us understand it, we need to go back just to Luke chapter 4 and to uh, carry on with those verses where we left off last time. So last week we were in the desert that ended in verse 13. Pick up verse 14 with me, would you, in Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned after the desert in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Verse 15, he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Now we brush over that because we're familiar with it. But for those who were first reading, for those that were part of this culture, there would have been certain obvious conclusions to be made because of that phrase, Jesus taught in their synagogues. They would have gone, ah, okay, that's fine. So Jesus was a rabbi. 
Because that's what the rabbis did. Not everybody wandered around and talked in the synagogues. That was the task, the role of the rabbi. And it's really important, I think, that we get our heads around a little bit this morning about how these first readers would have understood Jesus because they knew that he was a rabbi. Being a rabbi was really important in Jesus' day. Everyone wanted to be a rabbi, and the role of rabbi was highly revered and well understood. And the task of a rabbi would be, as it says here, to go round the synagogues, to teach to the crowds. But there was a goal that every rabbi had that was the most important part of what it means to be a rabbi. And the goal of every, every rabbi, and I quote from the Jewish text, was to raise up disciples. That's the task, the goal of a Jewish rabbi. To become a living example of how to live out God's word so that those that you gathered around yourself as disciples, your Talmudin, your group of students, would learn by walking with you, living with you, watching with you, eating with you, hearing you speak and so on, would learn to live the life that you have yourself learnt to live. It was not just about passing on a set of teachings, but about imparting a whole way of life. And so that's what the disciples uh, of rabbis in the time of Jesus would spend their time doing. And many of the ideas that the rabbis in Jesus' day developed came uh, literally out of the Old Testament and specifically out of the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And they had taken over the years the way that Elijah uh, mentored, discipled Elisha so that Elisha could carry on Elijah's ministry. Elijah was a great Old Testament prophet, the back end of 1 Kings, beginning of 2 Kings. And he passes on his ministry, his way of life, to the younger Elisha, so that when Elijah passed on, Elisha could carry on in his place. And so many of the ideas of a rabbi drawing and raising up disciples in the time of Jesus came from what they learned from Elijah and Elisha. And just a few things very quickly that they understood were, were really important for a rabbi in his task of raising up disciples. And the first of those was that a disciple, if a disciple really wanted to become like the rabbi, would need to be willing to leave everything. And so you have this uh, well-quoted story in, in Elijah's day of how Elijah went to Elisha, called Elisha to become his disciple, his follower, to take on his mantle. And Elisha started to go and then kind of had second thoughts and said, do you mind if I just go back home, sort out my business, say goodbye to my parents and so on. And, uh, and he kind of wavered in his commitment for a moment. Uh, and if you follow the story, Elisha goes back, in the end burns his plough. So he's unable to carry on his business as a sign of leaving everything to follow the older Elijah. And so the idea of a, of a disciple in Jesus' day being willing to give up everything to follow the master was commonplace. 
That's why Peter would say, in frustration at one point, look, we've left everything to follow you. What's Peter saying? We've done what we should have done as a disciple. Why are you moaning and complaining uh, about us? The second thing that uh, became really important to rabbis that were training disciples uh, in Jesus' day, again, based on the, the relationship of Elijah and Elisha, was that a disciple would come and live closely with the master, with the rabbi. And that's exactly what Elisha did. When Elisha gave up his home and his family business, he literally lived with Elisha, spent day after day, month after month, year after year together. The goal was not academic learning. The goal was for Elijah to impart to Elisha a complete way of life. So a Jewish historian would write of this rabbi-disciple relationship. A disciple did not grasp the full significance of his teacher's learning in all its nuances except through prolonged intimacy with his teacher through close association with his rich and profound mind. So a disciple in Jesus' day would go everywhere with his rabbi. They would eat the same food in exactly the same way. They would go to sleep at the same time. They would get up at the same time and in the same way. They would learn to study the Torah in exactly the same way. They would imitate him in everything. And so the disciple, by being immersed in the life of the rabbi, would slowly but surely become just like him. And that was the goal. So the famous phrase that you may have heard about being covered in the dust of your rabbi. There was nothing better, it was said, than to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it comes from this image of a rabbi coming into a village along the dusty roads, surrounded by his disciples, his Talmudin, and they're so close to him, so anxious to to hang on every word, to watch every action, to observe every nuance of his behaviour, that the dust of the rabbi literally poured over them because they were that close. A key aspect of a disciple's life was also that of service, serving the rabbi. And we know that Elisha, when he entered into uh, this relationship with Elijah, Elisha was, took the position of a servant. That's the significance of Elisha pouring water over the hands of Elijah that you can see in that verse on the screen. And the idea was that if a disciple adopted the role of a servant, always being open to the wishes, to the wants, to the needs of the master, he would both explicitly and implicitly pick up everything about the master's life and so absorb it much better into himself. Obviously then the relationship between master and disciple, rabbi and disciple, became very close. It was said to be a bond that was deeper and stronger than that of even your own family. So all of that is by way of introduction. So that when, uh, and if we go back to it now, that verse that we had some moments ago, uh, in, in Luke chapter 4 verse 14, when it says, he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him, all of this understanding clicks in to the reader. All of this, okay, so he's a rabbi, so his goal is to gather a group of people that will live with him, that will learn to serve him, that will imitate him, in order that one day they can be like him and do the things that the rabbi does. Uh, 
back to Luke chapter 4, okay? The next bit, verse 16, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 16, uh, Jesus, and they're thinking, okay, Jesus, he's a rabbi, went to Nazareth, and he preaches in the synagogue. Why? Because that's what rabbis do. And he happened to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And the, the part of the reading in Isaiah was a messianic prophecy. It was anticipating the, the day when Messiah would come and what the Messiah would do. Jesus reads it and says to them, well, actually, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so we have a rabbi who is claiming to be the Messiah, uh, and you would have expected that as a good Orthodox Jew. A true rabbi would be the Messiah. Uh, Deuteronomy talks about a king who would interpret and love the law of God. The king that would come, the Messiah king, would be a rabbi. The Messiah would be a new deliverer like Moses was the old deliverer. They talked about Moses as our rabbi Moses. So they expected Messiah when he came to be a rabbi. So no surprises there either. Then they get into some kind of discussion because they clearly want, uh, the people of Nazareth that is, clearly want Jesus to do some miracles just like they've heard him do in other towns. We know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus can't do that because of their lack of faith. And they kind of begin to tease him. Surely you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself, do in here your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus is trying to respond to their kind of taunts about, come on then, if you are the Messiah, if you are somebody more than just Joseph's son, show us the odd miracle or two. And then we get this lovely, uh, brilliant reply from Jesus. You see, Jesus could have used all kinds of stories in the Old Testament to explain why God blesses people of faith, even if they're not part of the nation of Israel, but God struggles to work in and through people with no faith. But what does Jesus do? He picks the story about Elijah and Elisha. So you love the way scripture talks about one thing, but gives a nod and a wink to something else. Jesus is talking to them about their lack of faith, but he gives a nod and a wink. Yes, what you're thinking is true. I am a rabbi in the style, in the pattern of Elijah and Elisha. And so tension begins to build in the story Because if this Jesus is a rabbi, and if not only is he a rabbi, he's the Messiah, then what's the question on everybody's lips? Who on earth is going to be good enough to be this man's disciples? Because everyone wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi. Verse 31. Then he went into uh, Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. Why? Because he was a rabbi. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Not only is he a rabbi, not only is he claiming to be Messiah, but this rabbi seems to be qualitatively different from all the other rabbis. This rabbi seems to teach in a way that no one else does. He seems to draw in our minds and touch our hearts in a way we've never seen or known before. 
Then he drives out a demon and they say, verse 36, all the people were amazed and they said to each other, what is this teaching with authority and power? He gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. Jesus hadn't said anything. He'd simply healed someone and they say, what is this teaching? Because they understood that the whole teaching and living were, were not two separate things, but they're all tied up. This, this rabbi, what is he teaching by his life that even he can drive out the demons that come against him. And so it built. Who's going to be this man's disciples? Verse 44, the end of Luke chapter 4, he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Why? Because he was a rabbi. Who on earth then will be this man's disciples? And so we open chapter 5 with the calling of his disciples. Who will these gifted, talented, exceptional people be who will be given the opportunity to serve this master, to serve this rabbi? More than that, though, who will be the disciples who will be given the opportunity to become like this rabbi? That was the goal, that every disciple would become like his rabbi. That was the goal of every rabbi to enable the disciple to become like him, the goal of every disciple to become like the one who taught him. One day, verse 1, chapter 5, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Why did Jesus sit down? Because he was a rabbi. That's how rabbis taught. They sat down to teach. Verse 3 is an amazing contrast, and it's easy to miss it. So this picture's been building of an exceptional rabbi. And the implicit question that everyone wants answered is, well, who on earth then are going to be his disciples? Because only the best of the best, and we'll come to this in just a moment, only the best of the best were ever allowed to be an ordinary rabbi's disciples. So who on earth could possibly be good enough to be this man's? Jesus borrows a boat, sits down to teach. The person whose boat he borrowed was a man named Simon. Really, 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 really good name. What do we know about Simon, apart from the fact he's got a really, really good name? We know he was a fisherman. He probably had his own fishing business because it was his boat, which meant he, um, you know, he probably wasn't uh, uh, the poorest in the pack. Uh, But he was a fisherman. What did that mean? This is what it meant. It meant he had not been good enough to become a disciple of an ordinary rabbi. That's what it meant. Because that's what happened in those days. Think about the journey that had taken Peter to that fishing business beside the lake. When Simon had grown up, or where Simon was growing up, or when he was growing up, everyone wanted to become a disciple to a rabbi. That was the goal. That was what you, that was what you reached for. That was what everybody dreamed of becoming. That's what would make you somebody in that culture. And so you would start school, 
you would start something called Bet Sefer at about the age of six, and you would go off to the local synagogue, and there a rabbi would begin to teach you the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. By around the age of ten, the pupils had memorized the whole first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't mean memorize the names of the books, I mean memorize the books. Flick through your Bible, it's an awesome thing. By age 10, some students were already beginning to struggle. They just couldn't get Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 11 in the right order. And it was looking worrying for them. And if they started not to be able to make the grade, they would be sent home to learn the family's trade. The very best would go on to something called Bet Talmud, early teens, perhaps 11 plus. This involved memorising the rest of the Jewish Bible. That's Genesis through to Malachi. Most of us can't memorise the names of the books, Genesis to Malachi. Hands up if you think you got a fair shot at that this morning. A couple of you. Good Sunday school training. Imagine the whole thing. Not surprisingly, more people were dropping out. And they'd be sent home to be apprenticed in the family business because they weren't good enough. They weren't going to make the grade. I wonder whether Simon was still in the running or had he already been sent back to learn the fisherman's trade. The best of the best of the best. Those that got through Bet Sefer and Bet Talmud went on to Bet Madrash. And they were given the opportunity at that level to begin to seek out a rabbi who might invite them to become one of his disciples. It was absolutely the rabbi's choice. No guarantees, but at Bet Midrash you could begin to apply to a rabbi and ask if you could become his disciple. The rabbi would grill you. Have you really learnt all the scriptures? Is your heart open and willing to be moulded and to learn? Have you fully understood the the yoke, the teachings and the, the way of life of the particular rabbi that you are asking to be discipled by? But more than that, the rabbi is asking the student one fundamental question. Has this young man who wants to be my disciple got what it takes to become like me? That was the deal. Has this man, young boy, whatever, got what it takes to become like me? And the rabbi might say, look, you love God and you love the law, but I'm sorry, go and learn the family trade because I don't think that you've got what it takes to become like me. But if the rabbi, and this only happened to a perilously few people, but if the rabbi sees that the student loves God, has diligently studied the ways of God, has tried to allow his life to be moulded in the ways and purposes of God, understands the rabbi, his way of life and his teaching, if the rabbi believes that the young man has what it takes to become like me, he will say, Come, follow me. Heard those words somewhere? 
before? Come, follow me. And you'd leave everything. Elijah, Elisha, you'd leave your family, your friends, your synagogue, and your village. You'd leave everything and devote your entire life to becoming like your rabbi. That's what it means to follow. Simon's a fisherman because he didn't have what it takes. And here he is, frustrated after a night's fishing. Verse 5, he's caught nothing. He's feeling great about himself. Can you imagine? He's gone back to the family trade because he wasn't good enough to be a disciple of an ordinary rabbi. Suddenly this exceptional rabbi comes up and he can't even show to this exceptional rabbi that he can even fish. He's been out all night and caught nothing. He can't even do what he was sent away back from the synagogue to do. And Jesus says, well, put out on the other side. And uh, you know the story, the nets are full and all of that. Uh, and then Peter falls down and says, look, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. Peter's overcome with his sense of inadequacy. He's overcome with his sense of failure. He's overcome with a sense that he, he didn't make it, he didn't have what it takes to become a disciple, and now the, the best rabbi anyone's ever known is in his presence, and he can't even catch uh, a load of fish by himself. I'm undone. I'm not worthy. Depart from me. And then the astonishing words, verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. Come, follow me, essentially, is what Jesus is saying. And you can read that in Matthew's Gospel. Notice how it's phrased. What Jesus is asking of Simon is not to come and learn a set of beliefs. But what Jesus is asking of Simon is to come and learn a different way of life. You, you've learned this way of catching fish. Now I want to teach you a new way all about catching men. That's what it meant to follow. It meant to learn to live a completely new, a different kind of life modelled on your master. And so they pulled up their boats on the shore, left everything and followed him. So what's all this got to do with us? What's all this got to do with me and you? Number one, discipleship is becoming like Jesus. Can you see that clearer than ever before? Jesus is a rabbi and he models himself on the way of life for Middle Eastern rabbis who would call disciples to become like their rabbi. When Jesus said to Peter, James and John, come follow me, they knew, everybody knew what it meant. It meant a complete change of life to learn to be like him. To learn to be like Jesus. That's what discipleship, that's what following means, to become like your rabbi. Now we talk of following and we talk of discipleship often in lots of different ways. If you've hung around churches for a long time, you will get the idea that discipleship can mean all kinds of things. Discipleship is the word that we often use when you complete a particular course. We talk about people going on a discipleship course where you might learn certain sets of beliefs or even behaviours or, or habits or doctrinal themes or something or other. 
We hear about discipleship being the kind of things that you do. Uh, You're a disciple because you read your Bible and because you go to church and because you're at the prayer meeting and because you pay your tithe. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not that those things aren't important. But what if discipleship is altogether different? You see, if discipleship is, have I read my Bible, and have I come to church, and have I paid my tithe, and have I whatever else it might be, I'm feeling pretty good. Sorry to be smug. I'm feeling pretty good. Pride comes before a fall. But you're feeling pretty good too, aren't you? You know, you pay your tithe, and you come to church, and you read your Bible, and you know, we feel we're pretty comfortable about that. But if discipleship, is what Jesus was doing with those guys when he was saying, come follow me. If the level of my discipleship is marked by how much am I like Jesus, that's a totally different measure altogether, wouldn't you agree? You see, I score quite high on the first one and not quite so high at all on the other. And so if we think about Jesus and him being a rabbi and calling those first disciples and those disciples were to call other disciples and we're part of this discipling relationship, the goal is to become like Jesus. Now don't forget the best bit. Sometimes I think, well, I can't possibly become like Jesus. And you look at me and think, yep, you're right, you probably can't. Thank you. I look at you and think the same too. But... If Jesus chose us to be his disciples as the rabbi, what does that mean? What was the rabbi looking for when he chose those disciples? The rabbi was saying, has this person got what it takes to become like me? That was the primary question of a rabbi calling a disciple. If Jesus has called me, he has looked at me and he said, Simon has what it takes to become like me. That's good news for all of us. He's called you, and in calling you by very definition of understanding what it means for Jesus to say, come follow me, means that Jesus believes that you can become like him. Yes, wow, yeah, uh, wow. That's what it means. And so with a certain amount of nervousness, yet with a heavy dose of confidence, we can put aside our tick box discipleship and go for something altogether better, altogether different, because Jesus believes in us. He says, I'll put my spirit in you that will bear the fruit of who I am. You've got what it takes. He believes in you. Discipleship is becoming like Jesus. But discipleship is also life on life. That's what Jesus did. How did he help those disciples to go from where they were as fishermen to become catchers of men? How did he help them make that complete life change, that complete transformation? He did it by sharing life together. You see, if anybody could have simply given the disciples, those new young twelve, a list of instructions and said, hey, go do it. It was Jesus. He was the one who could teach with authority. We've already heard about that. And yet even Jesus recognised that he would never help those guys change their lives simply by sharing information 
with them. We talked a little bit about this last night at the Crownham event. What Jesus did was to invite those 12 to come close enough to watch him, to see him, to imitate his way of life. Just like the rabbi would do with his disciples. Because the disciples needed to learn a new way to live. And they could only learn that new way to live by being closely in relate, sorry, by being in close relationship with the rabbi. I think that's got big implications for us. You see, if you are using me as the main Sunday teacher, as your primary vehicle for discipleship, you're stuffed. Is that clear? I think so. We're all stuffed. If you're using me as the primary vehicle for your discipleship, your growth will be very stunted. Because information, and I do my best to pack it in, I hope you appreciate that, information alone will not generate the life transformation that all of us are seeking. It's not enough. Jesus could only really disciple twelve. And to a greater extent, only three. Sometimes he took the three, Peter, James and John, away, that they might be even closer to him. So the thought that I could do 250, well, it's just a wild idea, completely. All of us need close relationships with people that can teach us to follow Jesus. We cannot do it another way. There is not a shortcut in the Bible for the discipleship process. Only by getting close enough to people, by learning from their example, by by imitating their way of life, can we learn to absorb the Jesus life in the here and now. Small groups, therefore, have a much greater advantage than a Sunday. Make sure you're part of a small group. You need it. You absolutely need it. Because this is never enough. And small groups are only enough if they journey towards imitation rather than just more information or disinformation, as one pastor said to me recently. You see, what we need is to be close enough to people that we can learn by their example, we can imitate their ways, we can absorb their lives and so learn what it means for ourselves to follow Jesus. Think how it worked with Jesus. He could have talked endlessly to the twelve disciples about going and having a meal with tax collectors and prostitutes. They would have listened politely to him, like you listen to me on a Sunday. And they probably would have done absolutely nothing about it, because going and having a meal with a tax collector or a prostitute was absolutely absurd in their minds. About as absurd as trying to talk about Jesus outside the church. That kind of absurd. Now they couldn't compute. They understood the words, but it made no sense. There was no point of contact. So Jesus, what does he do? He takes them to eat with prostitutes and tax collectors. They watch the way that he loves them, that he, he gives them respect and dignity. They watch the way he prays with them, talks to them, encourages them, challenges them, stands by them, sits and eats with them, and slowly their hearts are changed. 
Their attitudes are altered. Their way of life is adjusted. And after a while, they eat with tax collectors and prostitutes without a second thought. But information would never, ever have been enough. And so discipleship is a way of life. And we need to foster these discipling relationships in our lives. I don't know how we're going to work all that out. I don't know how you work that out at the moment. But you need, you really need people in your life, close enough to you, that you can learn from in that way. You see, if you need help being a Christian mum or a Christian dad, and who doesn't, you need to be close to a Christian mum or dad with a bit more experience than you. You'll learn way more than any book or any sermon, won't you? Someone that you can ask and talk to and share your heart with. Someone who's open and shares their struggles and their heart with you. You need help reaching your neighbour. You don't need me to tell you you should reach your neighbour. You know that. We all know that. We all know that and we all don't do that. Uh, Why? Because we need help. We need someone to walk the journey with us. Someone who's reaching their neighbours that we can share life with and and see how they do it and absorb it and imitate it and so on and so forth. That's true of, uh, of anything and everything. So if we're a disciple, we're going we're gonna to need these close discipling relationships, which also means we need to be willing to disciple others. That's a thought, isn't it? That you need to be drawing people close to you that can learn from your way of life, people close enough to see your example, people in touch with you to see Jesus at work in you, and therefore learn what it means to have Jesus at work in them. Because we've been called to this cascading sets of relationships. Go into all the world and make disciples and then teach those disciples to do everything that I've told you, which is to go into all the world and make more disciples. So you get disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And so you need to be discipled and you need to be discipling. That's the, that's the pattern. That's what's been offered to us as the Jesus way. And so I want to ask you, I want to ask you this morning, and perhaps these are the only two questions that are worth thinking about, just as, you, uh, um, just as we come to the end this morning. I want to ask you, who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? Who, who, who's discipling you? So who are the people that you're close enough with so that they're really helping stretch you in your Christian life? by seeing their example and imitating their ways. And then who are you doing that for? And that's hard. Who are you being open and honest with about your struggles and your heartaches, your successes and your failures, that they can learn from the richness of your experience? You see, whoever ever said faith was private has never read the Bible. There's nothing private about the Christian faith, if you understand it in this context. Your faith isn't private. It's from someone and it's to go to someone. Does that make sense? It's for you but for others. And and this can't do that. This does lots of things about vision and momentum and teaching and stuff. But it can't do this discipling stuff. So we've got to work out, each of us in our lives, who are the people that are discipling you? Who do you make sure you spend lots of time with, that you do life with, So that their way of life in Jesus rubs off on you. And who are you welcoming into your lives that you might teach them to be like Jesus? Both in an organised way 
and in an organic way, both in a formal way and in an informal way. Who are those people? That's the task that Jesus gave us. That's what Jesus was doing when he said, I'm a rabbi and I'm calling some disciples. And do you know when I said a few moments ago that Jesus believes in you to be like him? That also means that Jesus believes in you to have all that you need to disciple others. How cool is that? When you say, I couldn't possibly do that, Jesus says something different about you. Jesus says, you can.